Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Hello, and thanks for joining us today for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Now, our discussion might come across as a bit controversial, and some people might actually get upset. But Charles, you and I sort of came up with this topic independently in the midst of the social unrest, specifically gun tragedies that have taken place in various parts of the country. And we were discussing the fact that um, if you're not going to use God's law to address these issues and take the long view, that oftentimes people resort to the idea, well, you know, we just need to pray about this. So what's prayer got to do with it, Charles? You know, I've thought about this and uh, <clears throat> having been in pastoral ministry for close to 30 years now, uh, I've often said that I'm probably not the only one, but when uh, a church member is asked to do something, whether by the pastor or an elder, or um, it doesn't have to be a church member, would you be willing to help out with X or Y? There are two answers. There are two possible responses. Yes, or I'll pray about it, you know, uh, which is another way of saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Right. On the other hand, I uh, think that for me anyway, the the standard guide about this question and what it means is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asks that question, what is prayer? And the answer is, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. And when we talk about a tragedy, such as what we've seen in the past couple of weeks, and the idea about prayer somehow solving the problem or addressing the problem, well, it's certainly okay to offer up our prayers to God to ask for his guidance and help. But as you and I discussed before we began this, there's a sense in which prayer, the idea, okay, I'll pray about it or let's pray about it is a cop-out to use a somewhat dated phrase. Right. Because, uh, you know, solutions to problems and tragedies, regardless of what they are, they require action. And certainly seeking God's guidance and will is all well and good. But prayer too often is sometimes used as a crux to avoid having to take action and specifically biblical action. What's more, the Bible makes it clear that if you are in rebellion against God, actively defying him or not paying enough care to find out what God says on the subject, your prayers amount to an abomination. So just as when in ancient Israel, they would bring a sacrifice that was flawed as opposed to without blemish, that sacrifice wasn't accepted. And so when people say, I'll pray about it, or I just think the only solution to this problem is prayer, if I put it in another context, so let's take it into the context of a child and a parent. I want you to go upstairs and take a bath. Mom, I'll pray about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, a woman notices that her husband is being a little bit too flirtatious or flirtatious at all with another woman, and she calls him on it, and he says, I'll pray about it. 
right? Those answers wouldn't fly individual to individual. Yet, when we approach God as if he hasn't already spoken on this subject, and we now say, oh, by the way, I didn't bother to find out what it is you think. Tell me again. Or I know what you think, but maybe today the answer will be different. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, a, a standard line used by people with Arminian theology that says, well, prayer changes things. And this recently came up for a discussion in one of our Sunday school classes at uh, my church, where the thought was, well, if God has foreordained all that comes to pass, if he's sovereign and he changes not, how is it that that prayer changes things? Well, prayer can change us individually in the process of seeking God's will. But as Protestant Christians, our understanding is that Almighty God has revealed himself in Holy Scripture infallibly and inerrantly. And so, as the Catechism pointed out, we are to pray for those things which are agreeable to the will of God. Now, how are we going to know what the will of God is in order to pray that way? Well, we must know Holy Scripture. There's no other way. And that's another way of saying we must know God's law. So, in the context in which we're talking about, um, one of the things that uh, led us to this discussion apart from current events is the fact that Dr. Rastuni had spoken about this himself way back in 1966, and it was released as a Chalcedon report. And he was talking about the rising tide of evil in American culture way back then. People think today that we're living in this uh, very unique time. Maybe in some sense we are, but for people with any kind of memory at all, they know that the breakdown in our society, the turning away from the biblical standard on which our culture was initially at least somewhat informally, if not formally based, has been going on for a long time. And just as the alcoholic doesn't wake up one day a total drunk, it's a process of becoming more and more addicted to alcohol and committed to it. And so too it is with this. So back in 1966, uh, Dr. Rastuni referred to a letter that he got from a gentleman referring to this issue of the, the encroaching tide of evil in American society. And he said, the guy who wrote him the letter just said, well, let's pray about it. And Dr. Rossini said, I believe that such statements are blasphemous. Now, of course, that's enough to uh, set the average evangelicals hair on fire. I told people it might get upset when they listen to this discussion. <laughs> well, maybe there's a sense in which it's okay to get upset, especially if we're, we're challenging things that need to be challenged. And I think maybe that's one reason why there's some people who don't like to read Rush Dooney, because it challenges those very, very comfortable assumptions. But, I mean, obviously, he's not saying that prayer is blasphemous in and of itself. But in terms of the response to this issue, this is exactly what he meant. So let's dig a little bit deeper. All right. So there's a tragedy that happens more than one person, although one person dying would be a tragedy. Um, and And you have people saying, what's the answer? Now, I often think that they're thinking we, we have to look up at the sky and there'll be this little piece of paper that comes down and tells us the answer. When in actual fact, there are 66 individual books in something we call the Bible that does give us an answer. And a lot has to do to your orientation or a lot has to do with your orientation to the Bible. 
if it's a bunch of maxims that tells us when you're feeling low, open this book and it'll make you feel better. But as Dr. Rushduni would say over and over again, the Bible is not an inspirational book. It's an inspired book, which means that you're not always going to like what you read or what speaks to you and convicts you. So if we're trying to solve a problem that has deep roots in failure to obey God's law and to hold it as a standard, what do you think people think they're praying about? God, fix the mess we're in, even though we're not taking responsibility for what we've done? That's exactly the problem. And it reminds me of the title of an essay that appeared in what used to be called the Chalcedon Report, uh, a pastor. I, I never forgot this because it more or less had to do with Christian counseling, but it applies to the same here. Uh, the headline of the article was, please help me. I have a problem, but don't ask me to change. <laughs> and and he, uh, you, you might recognize, I'm not going to call the guy's name because I'm not exactly sure I remember, but right. he was he was talking about the fact that, you know, too often people who seek counsel, they want to, they want relief of the, for the problems that they're dealing with, which in many cases they brought in themselves, but it's more talk therapy than really having concrete solutions that involve changing behavior. Well, we have the same thing here. It's, it's easier to say, well, yeah, we need to go pray about that. Oh, this is terrible. Look what's happening in our society. Look what's going on over here. The inflation, da, da, da. And yeah, we just really need to pray. Uh, well, friends, that's okay. But we also need to take biblical action and understand why these things have come about and whether it's the case of a school shooting uh, or something else. And I want to, if I may refer once again to this article that Dr. Rastuni wrote, because he described in some detail about this issue in his day. And he says, but today, the sentimentalism that parades as Christianity, instead of seeking to control and convert the evil, seeks instead to love it and subsidize it. Right. What, a, what an incisive indictment. What, how on the mark he really was with that. So two things to, to comment on what you said just previously is, first of all, people say, well, you'll pass a law or you have law and order and that won't change people's hearts. That's true. Law never changes people's hearts. However, if you do not control evil, you're basically saying, you know what? Evil should prevail. So it's a dereliction of duty. It's not doing what you're supposed to do. But going back to the idea of let's pray about it, when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, how should we do it? What we now know is the Lord's prayer was the response. And he wasn't really saying, say these words and then magic happens. He was giving us an order of priority, acknowledging God, acknowledging him as creator and determiner of all things, and that what happens in heaven, where there's no sin, we're desirous of it happening on earth. And so although we acknowledge that we are not going to attain sinlessness on our own, we do have a target, a goal in mind that says this is what it should look like. And I don't think people pray that way. They just say, I don't like what's happening and there's plenty not to like, but they're not really saying, not my will, but your will be done. And that's, of course, one of the key statements in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is a direct appeal 
to God's law order. No, we're not saying, obviously, that simply obeying the law changes the heart. The heart, no one can obey the law unless their heart has been changed and they have a desire to do that. But there's also, if a person has been properly taught scripture, the idea that God's law is the way of life, the way of justice. And it is also, and I hope to come back to this in a few moments, it also leads us to the issue of criminal population control. You know, how, how do you reduce the amount of evil in society? Uh, and, and God has given us the solution in this way. So um, w- when we want to pray about something, that's all well and good. But specifically, let us pray according to the will of God. Is there some will of God that is just very narrowly focused on an individual and nothing else? Well, not according to Scripture. You know, we like to say that God's word is a total word. It is a, a, a something that applies to all of life. I'm going to be speaking this Sunday at my church on the subject of renewal and reformation and revival. And too often the idea of those things have been reduced to some week-long special service in a fundamentalist church with a, you know, red-faced preacher screaming and hollering and that kind of thing. But when we look at these things in Scripture, and some people have suggested we can identify 10 phases of renewal and reformation in the Old Testament, they are always accompanied by not just the change of an individual, but the change of an entire community, and they are also accompanied by a recognition that there has been a falling away from obedience to God's standard, and the renewal comes about, obviously motivated by the Holy Spirit, but component to that is a recommitment to God's way of justice, God's way of life. And so the commitment part of what you just mentioned, that commitment has to do with the way things should be. So we're not at a deficit in terms of how should things be. The scripture lays it out. And what's more, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, which sadly, a lot of congregations won't even say outside of Reformed or Anglican or even Catholic circles. Uh, many uh, non-denominational evangelical churches won't say the Lord's Prayer. But the Lord's Prayer ends with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. So what does that mean in terms of our petitions? Well, if our petitions are in line with what God says, we can count on the fact that he determines what's right and wrong, and that all power and glory is his. So it really speaks to a victory in our pursuits, but not so much that we're going to change the entire world, that we work first on ourselves and the areas where God has given us jurisdiction and that we'll see success. Um, We shouldn't measure success on a national level if we haven't seen and worked towards success on a very local level. Exactly. And anytime something like that is attempted where there has not been the local level right down to the individual renewal of the heart and mind or the salvation of the individual heart and mind, the rest of it just doesn't follow. It it either is it it doesn't succeed almost out of the gate or it turns into be something totally phony and not the authentic thing. Uh, and unfortunately, there have been maybe some well-intended but highly mistaken people who have described the theonomic reconstruction view as sort of, well, the, you know, the Christians need to take over politics and government and, and institute a theocracy. 
and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, but that has nothing to do with either with what Rush Dooney taught or what the Bible teaches. Those things will inevitably happen insofar as the majority of the people, or maybe not even a majority, but a significant number of people in a community are gripped by the truth of God's law word, and they govern themselves accordingly. It, it sort of it goes from the ground upward, not from the top downward. Right. And if you don't believe that blessing comes as a result of obedience and judgment, negative um, occurrences in a society come as a result of disobedience, you're going to be looking in all the wrong places to try to figure out what's the path to a solution. So I'm sure you've heard it. I've heard it. They're attacking the Second Amendment. They're attacking the Second Amendment. Well, why would man listen to the good laws, the good um, procedures that were put together at the founding of our nation and consider that sacrosanct when they won't pay any attention to God's law? So what we're seeing is the effects of relativism when people decide they just don't want to go all in on the Bible because that's so radical, as you put it, you know, theocratic fundamentalists or whatever. Yeah, just put a label on it so everybody goes, oh, no, no, I don't want to be that, as opposed to what would be wrong if everyone on this earth was obedient to God? What would be the downside of that? Well, obviously, if you're Satan, there would be a lot of downside to it. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's exactly what he's opposed from the very beginning. And people who are either fooled by him or gladly doing his will don't want it either. But uh, in this same article that Dr. Rushdini wrote back in 1966, he makes uh, another statement where he says, there was no lack of evil in past years but there was also no lack of control over evil. Delinquency, crime, and evil were major problems in 19th century America, but the controlling forces were also vigilant. And the idea that evil needs to be controlled, if not eradicated, was a foundational principle of people operating according to biblical law. But we can go beyond that and say, it's the principle of any law order. Any law order is suicidal if it allows what it classifies as evil to flourish. The problem that we face today is that those who consider God's word and the work of God's spirit evil are the ones who seem to proliferate, at least for the time being, and God's people who've been largely taught to ignore God's law and what we call the Older Testament and just focus on the red letters of their King James Bible, well, then they have nothing to fall back on. But as Dr. Rustuni referred there, and as God's law word tells us, he's given us his standard of justice that if followed by people who obey him under the power of God's spirit, it brings about true peace and prosperity. You mentioned that just now, and uh, if I think it's Hag- the book of Haggai chapter 4, I can't remember the chapter, but in, in the book of Haggai, he refers to this and saying to these people, these Israelites who have turned away from God, and he outlines all these problems that they're facing. You know, you, you earn money, but you're basically putting it into a bag with holes in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you're you're eating, but you're never satisfied. And he he's couching that within the statement or the larger concept of being disobedient to God and turning away from his truth. That's the negative consequence. You come to the book of Joel, and he says the same thing, but he outlines both the negative and the positive, that 
if you'll turn back to me, the Lord says, you'll have this blessing and that blessing. Ultimately, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh, this looking forward to the coming of the kingdom of Christ. But then he also says to them immediately, you will have these material blessings as well. So when you uh, decide that sin and judgment are separated, I always teach that the judgment is in the sin. So if you're fornicating, the likelihood of you having a disease that will be, um, in some cases, deadly or not, you don't have to wait for something to happen. It's right there in the sin. The same way that when you are actively obeying God, there's blessing, even if that obedience causes some external problems, but you're being faithful. And it goes back to, do we use God's definitions? Now, in the scripture, or we can extrapolate from the scripture, when we talk about man being sinful, another word for that is depraved. He does not have what he needs in order to be in fellowship with God. And that's why the Holy Spirit's necessary. But it's not like the idea of depravity goes away if you don't look at it in a biblical context. If you think today, we have decided as a society, or at least many have as they're debating the issue of shootings, that guns are depraved. And people who think they should have or do have the right to protect themselves from bad guys or government, they're depraved. So one group will always assign depravity to another. The question is, are we using God's definitions or are we using man's? And that's exactly what I was saying a moment ago about the fact that uh, uh, the classification of something being evil is inescapable in any law order system. I uh, was rethinking in, uh, this issue about what our society calls gun control. In reality, it's citizen disarmament. And one of the books I was reading about this had reference to um, this statue. Well, it's really, I guess, a sculpture that's in front or near the United Nations in New York City, the United Nations building. And, the, and it's this revolver pistol with the barrel twisted into a knot with the idea that, you know, we're, we want peace. We want people to stop shooting each other. But, of course, uh, that's only certain people not being able to use weapons. And nobody wants anybody to shoot anyone unjustly. On the other hand, the Bible clearly teaches us we have the right to defend ourselves and our families and our property by whatever means is appropriate and necessary. So, again, that sculpture in front of the United Nations means disarming people we don't think should be armed, which means anybody who disagrees with our agenda and our plan. Meanwhile, they're armed because they're going to enforce this disarmament. Exactly. I mean, that. Yeah. Again, every society has a law order, and it seeks to control evil. It seeks to corral what it considers evil. And uh, in all times and all places, people who are bent on evil have to be compelled to stop what they're doing. Uh, apart from God's prevailing grace, they're not going to stop on their own. They must be hindered. And so that, again, gives, according to God's standard, a government a certain amount of authority over stopping evil in society, and or I should say punishing it once it's been properly um, adjudicated. So if we don't have that, if we all lay down our 
our weapons and try to have the uh, the new age unicorn and rainbows peace. Uh, that has never existed anywhere. And too often we've seen how those people who promote such ideas themselves are quite willing to bring harm to others physically. And I don't think there's any reason we should um, not identify that there are some people who don't have a problem with other people being murdered. All you have to do is look through history and recognize that there were whole groups of people that set out to annihilate, injure, um, depopulate other groups of people. So I don't remember where I read it, but, um, and it was recently, that's one of the problems when you read a lot, you're like, where did I read that? (laughs) Um, That you look at the school shootings, you look at the, government schools in the first place and other people have referred to it as offering up children to bail or moloch worship turning them over to the state so just like in ancient cultures where children were burned to appease the gods what about looking at the current affairs in government schools and that's exactly what's happening so this is just the next step you know if if People must die in order to appease this evil desire to see man separated from God. I mean, it happened at first in the garden. You saw it with the slaughter of the innocents with Herod. He had no problem killing children. And now that there's a possibility that abortion could be restricted, you have people who are adamant. You can't tell me I can't kill. Right? So, It's got to be obvious to people with their eyes open, we are in a war. This isn't just a difference of opinion, and we can all get along if we sit down over coffee. No, this is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent fighting each other. And it's time that people wake up and say, this is a war, and I can either be a participant on God's side, a participant as an enemy of God, or a casualty. Our society itself has become a casualty of this kind of uh, what Dr. Rastini referred to in this article as a sentimentalist thinking um, about such things. And I think it goes hand in hand with a type of evangelical theology and worship in particular that lends itself to that sort of uh, more emotive and feeling side of things rather than the the legal uh, jurisprudence and scripturated teaching and proclamation and obedience to the word. There's nothing wrong with sentiment. There's nothing wrong with emotion. But that's not going to stop the progress of evil in a society where it may be proliferating. And um, in this same article, I'm not going to quote it this time, but he refers to the fact that in, in, in that time which he wrote this, there were two things that were contributing to the rise of this in American society. And one of them was the fact that there were people who probably were in the same category that you were referring to earlier, they don't mind doing evil. They don't mind killing people. And uh, But the other, he, he mentions, uh, and he says this is the even, the even more central, significant, uh, or more important part, is that there are lots and lots of so-called good Americans who indulge in this sentimental and uh, unrealistic way of looking at things, and they refuse to exercise the really difficult and necessary control over evil that God's law requires of us. You know, one of the things that comes up often in this discussion, and 
I well recall the first time I saw it when Dr. Rastuni was being interviewed by Bill Moyers on that famous PBS special back in the 1980s. And he brings up the fact that God's law requires capital punishment, capital execution for certain types of crimes that God's law decrees are to be punishable by death. And, you know, he, Dr. Rastuni was asked, now, this is the one the Bible is really suspect on, isn't it? Or you, you people who promote this. And Dr. Rastuni's response was, this is God's standard of justice. And it didn't occur to me at the time, and it hadn't didn't occur to me until really fairly recently in all these years, that this is what God has prescribed in terms of criminal population control. And you, the, the, the contrast is obvious and if a society doesn't want that, then you're going to deal with the consequence, which is the rise and the proliferation of people who will kill you. They will do away with you for their reasons, for their standards of justice. So we're not talking about indiscriminate killing. We're talking about the, the stopping of, of people and actions that promote evil and promote degradation and destroy cultures and destroy individuals. Right. So the Bible posits... If you remove those who commit capital crimes, and there's not a very long list in scripture, it includes things that most people would be in agreement of or against murder, kidnapping, incest, rape, homosexuality. These are capital offenses. So we got to start with this is what God says. But just don't think that the enemies of God don't have their own doctrine of capital punishment. It includes things like abortion. It includes things like euthanasia. It includes things like setting up uh, wars and sacrificing the youth of their nation to go out and fight these wars for their gains. This is capital punishment in action it's just that they don't call it that. But we have to recognize that the enemy likes to imitate God as an angel of light, right? The devil didn't come to Adam and Eve and say, by the way, I'm about to make your life miserable. No, that's not how he posited or posed in, in, he was there to help him. So don't think that every religious view other than Christianity or biblical Christianity, doesn't have doctrines of sacrifice, depravity, capital punishment, things like that. Restitution, I mean, all you have to do is look at the current um, idea on critical race theory. Yeah, they want restitution. They want people today to make restitution for things they never did and then assign it to them because of the color of their skin. So it's interesting to look at the world from the point of view of what God says and then how people badly imitate it or counterfeit it. It's interesting, too, and highly instructive when we listen to the proposed solutions in relation to the most recent school shooting. Uh, we're re recording this in the summer of 2022, and there have been a series of school shootings these seem to have replaced the serial killers of previous generations. You know, it used to be we had uh, superstar killer, uh, serial killers who were named and, you know, promoted in some level in the media. That seems to have disappeared. Now we've got school shootings and shooting up places where there are mass gatherings where shooters can assume safely that no one is going to fight back because guns are banned in those places. But when you look at the two different sides 
of this corrupt culture who are proposing solutions, one the so-called liberal, one the so-called conservative, you can see the, the state of judgment that, that we're in. Because on the one side, you've got the people who say the complete solution is to ban most, if not all, weapons, handguns, by which people could defend themselves, obviously. But on the other side, what have the so-called conservative groups been saying? Well, no, no, these schools, we don't need to ban guns. We need to make sure the students get counseling. They need mental health counseling. Well, what in the world is that supposed to mean? And, and what kind of mental health counseling are they going to get in a public school? Right. I saw yesterday uh, proceedings in Congress where it's argued that you should raise the age to be able to purchase a firearm to 21 and then at the same time reduce the voting age to 16 and then somebody else says but we'll still send our you know young men at 18 uh to war right so the good part about all this is we get to see the inconsistency and absurdity of humanism how can all three things make sense let's get them to vote at 16 Let's say that they can't drink or own a firearm till they're 21, but we'll send them off to war because we need to send people to war. We will not stop talking about God's word and his solutions to the problems we face and his uh, description of why we face these problems uh, as a Christian community and in our society. At the same time, we recognize that we are living in the death throes of a humanistic culture that is collapsing on itself. Now, of course, uh, many of the point leaders of this society and what they want as a globalist society think they're on the edge of a new breakthrough and some glorious future uh, that's sort of like the Jetsons in the old TV cartoon. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing could be further from the truth. And as uh, the president of the Chalcedon Foundation, Mark Rastuni, has written on more than a few occasions, what we're facing, as I just said, is the collapse of humanism. And this is a very difficult time for followers of God's word to be alive, but at the same time, it should fill us with hope and expectation that God is faithful to his word and that he is bringing these sanctions, these judgments to bear and letting people have what they want. Um, to, to use the words of Dr. Van Til, people are becoming epistemologically self-conscious. When you uh, descend into the void and you want to live according to this godless standard, then you eventually wind up with a society where people don't know what it means to be human anymore. They become stupid and idiotic. Uh, they embrace the ugly and the profane. And yet there's something within human beings, if they have the work of God's spirit in their lives that craves and desires something more than that. And the Lord himself has promised that he will maintain and has maintained a remnant that will be the spark through which all of this will eventually be pushed aside and the rebirth and the bringing forward of a true biblical society and culture. So I would say, Charles, prayer has a lot to do with it, but I think we need to pray righteously um, a lot of people probably have never heard the term imprecatory prayer. And what that is, is asking God wholeheartedly, please judge those who are in violation of your law. Uh, Psalm 119 is a lament by David. 
in many places because God's law isn't followed. So if we believe that God's standard is the right standard, then we should also believe that the enemies of God, it would be our desire to see them stopped. But why should God stop his enemies and our enemies if we're not willing to do what he says to do? And sometimes it's very simple. It's acknowledging I'm going to call something what it is. I'm going to call a man a man. I'm going to call a woman a woman. No, I'm not going to take your absurd definitions. I'm going to remain true to my calling as a child of God. And that includes knowing truth and affirming truth. And so if people are willing to, as the term in um, warfare is, call down a strike on their own position. We've got to be willing to say, God, if the society we're in is at war with you, then remove those who are at war. If I end up being a casualty of that because I happen to live and be near that, so be it. But for the believer, next step is before the throne of God, right? So we have to look at ourselves as participants in God's story and not decide that the way to judge right or wrong is do we get off the hook easy. And I think, uh, as I, you were alluding there, prayer is a part of that. So, again, to stress, I, I hope what we stressed effectively in the beginning is that we're not saying people should not pray, but we pray biblically. And as the catechism says, that for things that are agreeable to God's will. And it's certainly agreeable to God's will that we pray to him that he would deliver us from evil, that he would deliver us from the current evil age. But if we are going to follow the biblical pattern, for the things that are agreeable to his will, it is agreeable to his will that evil men be destroyed. And so in, in many churches, I, I've heard it most often in Reformed churches, it is a common practice during the main prayer of the service, which is generally led by the pastor, the pastoral prayer, that we pray for government officials. I know in my church and others, we pray for our governor of our state. We pray for the president. It doesn't matter who he is, but we don't just say, uh, bless President so-and-so, or we pray for Governor so-and-so. We pray specifically that President whoever and Governor whoever will obey God's law. And at least in my church, we pray, if they won't, oh Lord, we pray that you will remove them. We pray that you will frustrate the efforts of those who would pro promote evil in our society and that you would turn it back upon them. That is biblical prayer. But too often, to use the term that Rustini used in this article, there's sentimentalism in prayer, which, oh, no, 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 that's too, that's too, that's, oh, no, we, we can't say that. Well, why not? God says it. Right. Too many people have fashioned God as they would like him to be rather than how he is. And therefore, they go to him in prayer. And do they go to him as a, a friend? Do they go to him as a counselor? Do they go to him as the customer service person who you finally get to after the music has played for 12 minutes and you get to give your complaints? Or do we look at him as a king or in military terms as a general? Um, can you imagine somebody going, to, uh, let's take the story um, where Esther couldn't even walk in front of the king without being invited for fear of death. We don't have that view. Can you imagine going to God and saying, God, how upset are you with the massacre 
of unborn babies. And how long do you think we should take, you know, would 10 years, would 50 years, would 100 years be an appropriate amount of time to fully obey you? No. And yet we figure we can do this with God. How do you approach God? Do you approach him the same way that Moses approached him that, you know, or Isaiah approached him saying, I don't know if I can live if I see you face to face. In other words, they recognize the awesome, and this is an appropriate word for God, awesome nature of being in front of somebody who is 100% pure and righteous, which then allows us to know we're not. But I really would say that if you're going to pray about it, Understand your posture when you come to God. Doesn't mean you have to be so afraid of God that you won't talk to him, but the fear of the Lord brings wisdom and wisdom is what we need to solve God's way. The problems our society faces. Indeed we do. And we can certainly be praying that more of our fellow citizens would understand these things. They would find their way to churches that teach these things and we would begin to see change in a positive way. Uh, I think another way of putting this maybe on a personal level is that let's say we have a person, and I'm just going to throw this out there. Let's say a person is, has a problem with gambling, you know, and they um, say, Lord, I know I've got this problem. I'm not properly using the money that you've given me. I'm squandering it in this way. And when I go to the casino, I'm also getting too much to drink and I'm getting drunk. Lord, please help me with this. Um, okay, let's book the flight to Las Vegas tomorrow. They've got a good thing going on at the, you know, so you can pray all you want to, if there's not the corresponding action that you recognize where I know I've got a problem, just like the title of that article, I need help, but don't expect me to change. No, God does expect us to change. And he expects us to change, to change according to his standards, according to his rule. And once that begins to happen, in the individual lives of men, women, and their children and their families, then we will see the corresponding change in everything around us. Right. Unlike the slogan that goes with Mr. Rogers, you know, he likes you just the way you are. God doesn't love us just the way we are because there would be no need to change us. There'd be no need to be born again if just the way we are was fine. So, We come to God expecting that I'm going to have to do some work here and that it might not always be pleasant, but there's a difference between what's pleasant and what's righteous. Yeah, and I think uh, for myself, if I can put my final word on our our topic for the day, uh, I would like to do so referring to something Dr. Rushduni said on this line. He said that control must begin in the personal life in the family, and it must be rigorously applied to every aspect of American life. That is the path of justice, the path of truth, and we can lament uh, school shootings and other tragedies as they may arise, and we may go to God in prayer about them, but let's understand what God considers to be effective and honorable prayer, and let's govern ourselves according to that way. Indeed, and my final thought would be There's nothing that says it's righteous to be a bystander. If you see on whatever level something that's wrong and that is contrary to what or the way things should be, then you do something 
not just do something and, you know, start picketing somewhere, but you find that which God has commanded that you can apply. If you're concerned about all that's being taught in government schools, then adopt a family and help that family get their, that particular family's children out of the school and help support them, whether it's in homeschooling or helping them get scholarships or putting some of your own resources to helping them do it. Being a bystander doesn't get you off the hook, but being someone who's actively involved, now you're putting your hand to the plow and you will see that, yeah, life might be difficult, but there's certain blessings that only come about when you are being obedient in the midst of the fray. And I would encourage people to look at it in that way and from that point of view. Indeed, yes, I agree. All right. Well, listeners, thanks. Hope we gave you something to think about. Certainly gave us something to think about as we were preparing. Um, as always, you can reach us at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.